How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 141. Took a big breath there. You're like, how's it going, guys? Yeah, I like it. like, it's like I'm about to start one of those auctions. Like, uh, <laughs> That's a 400, good 200, 300. 400. They're you going ever, down. You ever seen They're a going down storage value. wars? And like, they do that. Yeah, I like that There's guys that are just like, oh, I'm going to go for 250, go to 250, Is that when they're in like a literal storage shed and they're yeah. just like yelling? Yeah, that's great. So great. Don't even have like a gavel or anything. Yeah, <laughs> we don't do like classy movies anymore. We just talk about crappy reality TV shows. Where they're it, like, yeah. I think I'm gonna buy it at 280. <laughs> oh my god, Mike got it at 290. Unbelievable. I love, I love that stuff. We and talked. It, we talked a bit about that when I was when I was down south shooting that thing, and that was all that was on TV at two in the morning. I'll just yeah. watch that for an hour. It's fantastic. It's the best. And then whenever they find something, they're like, oh my God, it's this. And I know every bit of information about this item. <laughs> <laughs> Circumstantially, <laughs> I know everything, yeah. Oh, it's so funny. It's uh, just so great. Man. How you doing, Jake? Yeah, not too bad. We, it's funny because we both... Um, it's actually been a pretty big week for us, Zeke. Very big week. I know. We had our WA... AFL Grand Final, which we was did. amazing. We did. No, I mean, we didn't. We didn't go. We didn't get tickets. Unfortunately, not. But we no. got to watch it, and it was also weird to see. I remember in the earlier parts of the day when mm. they were showing like the outside of Burswood and showing parts around Perth and stuff, and it's very weird to be like, oh yeah, that's just happening twenty five minutes down the road. Yeah, crazy. Um, and it would have been great to to stand outside Optus, but I get it. Yeah, I get it. Um, it was really good. Largest mm-hmm. crowd at Optus ever. It's a great grand final. Great performances for the the pre and halftime shows. Um, just over round. Just a great event. Great day. Yeah, bit it was of, day for it. Bit of WA pride for us there. Absolutely. So yeah, no, yes. that was really awesome. Australia all the way. <laughs> exactly. And it's funny because that almost ties a little bit into the fact we both got our first dose this week. Oh yeah, we did of the uh, the the infliction around the world. Five <laughs> G. The five <5G>. G <laughs> dose. Yeah, we got vaccinated. There you go. So we're gonna um, wait a few more weeks for the next one, but uh, it synced up quite nicely. Yeah, I'll be doing for my second one on the twentieth. Oh, interesting. I am the gosh. I think I'm the nineteenth actually. That's crazy. That is crazy. <laughs> oh no no no! Because I did Wednesday too. I think we're both going on the twentieth. Oh well. Let me just stop. Yep, twentieth of October. Look at that. So if anyone's in the Claremont area. <laughs> And they want to get better, vaccinated better, with better Zeke the, and Jake. Fans of the show. <laughs> fans of the show. We're going to have a meet and greet I was, uh, you know, I was on the vaccination about, center. At some point, maybe <laughs> ever doing like a live show would be fun. Oh, yeah, anyone cool. would actually go to that. Uh, it would have to be at the vaccination center in Claremont. Yeah. That would be that would be a moment. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so we're both going to go on the 20th. Yeah, I didn't realize that. There, there you go. go. I'll, I'm not going to ask what time yet. Well, no. Our, our fans don't deserve to know I'll, that I'll, much I'll tell you us. off the show. Good, good. Um, that part but uh yeah we're no a, we're gonna have a crazy fan with do good pen. <laughs> not not dying sign my dvd of pig <laughs> speaking of pig Jake, <laughs> do you have any trivia for me i do actually i do have some trivia for pigs so it's funny because we you know we went into this i think you went into this pretty blindly i don't think you knew much about the yeah. film you had nicholas cage in it right it. exactly and i think i was sort of in a similar mindset i know a lot of people sort of in the film you know Square, like, oh, like, you know, Nicolas Cage is doing a weird film and it's about a pig, it's awesome, and it's got A24 vibes and all that crap. I was just like, okay. But I didn't really know much about it other than that. And it's interesting to go into what to watch it and, and, you know, make an observation on the film and realize after the fact it was actually a pretty cheap film. I couldn't find the exact budget, 
but I know that it was so small that they had to shoot it within 20 days with no room for reshoots or coverage, or not coverage, but, um, you know, reshoots and rehearsals and stuff like that. Um, and the, the titular pig that they couldn't afford to get a trained pig was only on set for about three days. So mm. I thought that was quite interesting. That is interesting. Um, well, to build on that... Ooh, um, I like a bit of building. Particularly the relationship Nicolas Cage had with said pig. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> what kind of relationship did he uh, have with said pig? <laughs> director Michael uh, Sanoski uh, revealed the pig only had three days of training and bit Nicolas Cage multiple times. Oh, um, nasty. After a particularly nasty bite, uh, bite, Cage joked, I've been set on fire, I've been flipped in cars, but it will be Seppus uh, from a pig bite that'll kill me. <laughs> um, I thought that was really interesting. That's been pretty bad then, jeez. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that that's pretty much probably the most uh, important trivia you can really gain from this kind of film. It's basically, <laughs> well, mostly it's a low-budget film that had a very quick turnaround. Right. Uh, I thought you meant the pig biting. Oh, Nicholas yeah. Cage. Yeah, that's easily the most important. No, there you go. Um, but yeah. But no. Jake, I have to pose you the question. Hmm. Would oh, this going to pose would, it to me? Would this <laughs> make the list the eleven hundred films to watch mm. before you die list? Yeah, so it, it is definitely not on the list because the film obviously is too recent for it to be on the list. I probably wouldn't. Now, and why is that? I I wouldn't. That's not a commentary on the quality of the film, and we're mm. obviously going to get into that. But it just it hits that middle road of you know you think about you know the the main the, the films you have to watch before you die that really have something important to say and are really well made and and all of that and I'm like I think Pig sort of it, it makes the leap towards that that cloud I guess and it just doesn't quite make the jump you know what I mean like, it's not a reflection on the quality but I could probably think of 1100 films I think are required viewing more than Pig yeah yeah I agree with that okay. Um, I would, yeah, I think the films that we might be comparing it to and juxtaposing it with later in the show, some of them might be more mm, prominent okay. or, or more, um, films that I would promote for that 1100 list over this film. Um, not that that makes us a bad film or a derivative film in that sense. It's just, mm. it's a tough, it's an elite list. Yeah. Well, we that's to, it. That you want it to be an elite You know, list. We, we were talking about this off the air of the show. Neither of us have really um, forced ourselves or pressured ourselves to watch uh, films this year. So, like, I, I've mm. done my yearly yep. challenge. You've done that before, too. And we've still managed to watch, between the two of us, like, nearly 100 films each. I think I've, I'm yeah. just over 100. You're just under it. Um, yeah, let me check. I think Pig might have been... For me, 97. And I'm at 107. So, the fact of the matter is, yep. it's like... We're capable of watching a hundred films lackadaisically throughout a year. Yeah, that's ten percent. Oh, that's a that's nearly like um ten percent of that list. Well, even just looking at my um letterbox, it should have my. Oh, I need to check. Oh, let me check the phone app. That'll be more accurate. But because it, it it distinguishes what's actually been logged, like what films you've given a grade, mm-hmm. and I've only logged films that I've seen in the last three or four years, and that's got to be about a thousand now. Oh, well, 650. Yeah. So, but you're right. That's that's like half the list right there. So... Yeah. So, know. I think that's a really important thing because... Um, so, yeah. I just thought I'd, I'd bring that in. No. But I guess it's time... Enough. Jake, have you caught anything in the last week? Speaking I, of I, these films. Yeah, so I've caught a few things. I'll just give a, give a quick shout out. I didn't actually sit down and watch this. I've, I've seen bits and pieces because I've, I've walked past it on 
you know, on TV being watched. Um, so the new Netflix show called Squid Game, I think mm. it's called Squid Game, um, which is essentially it's a South Korean show, but it's essentially about like 450-ish people uh, who uh, I, I think they're rich, but they're in like massive debt and they're strapped for cash to pay off that debt. They also to get chosen and forced into this Hunger Games esque competition where they play like children games or children's games like uh, Red Light, Green Light. I think um, like the tug and pull game they're going to do at one point. Uh, that's sort of the premise behind it. But I, I caught little glimpses of it in the last week and it looks really interesting. I like the production design is like so wild. Like some of the hallway scenes they walk in is very colorful, very like distinctive blocks that they're walking through. Uh, the violence is awesome, <laughs> which I, is I know it may be a weird critique or not even a critique, a compliment. But um, I, just, I love the violence because it is so in your face and just so absurd for what it actually is. So I wanted to give a shout out to Squid Game. I, I should sit down and watch it myself, but it looked really interesting from what I've seen. The other thing I've seen is the Norm MacDonald special that's on Netflix called Hitler's Dog, Gossip and Trickery, mm-hmm. uh, which I love the name Hitler's Dog because that literally comes up in the last like two minutes. <laughs> so it's almost like a game of, did I miss it? Did he mention it already? Uh, but I watched this because I wanted to honor, of course, his passing a couple of weeks ago. I've been obsessively watching his stuff on YouTube, like the stuff he does on the couch with like Conan and like podcasts he's done and that. Um, I think he's like one of the greats. He's done some stuff with Bilbo as well, which I think is hilarious. But um, he actually passed away like two weeks ago now. And I forgot to mention last week that the reason I watched Man in the Moon, or one of the reasons, is that he actually has a cameo in it with Jim Carrey mm-hmm. um, and one of like the... I think it's called... Let me actually get the name of the show that the real-life Andy Kaufman did. The Friday's TV show in 1981, where it's like the food fight incident, uh, where he, like, ruins the skit on set, and then the guy in front of him, like, drops the, the cue cards on the table, and it, like, ruins the whole skit. Mm-hmm. And it's like a question of, well, is this intentional? You know, Andy Kaufman, like, it's hard to tell. Um, so, Norm MacDonald plays that role in the film Man on the Moon. So, that was one of the reasons I wanted to watch it. Bit of an ode to him. Um... I think I think he's a great comedian and just like his style of breaking the rule book, like intentionally telling jokes and stretching them out to be like five minutes long, like, you know, with the, the Conan moth joke and things like that. I love that type of humor. I don't think his stand-up translates as well because he has like, the, you know, those mannerisms. He stands perfectly still in front of the mic. He doesn't utilize the space around him, which is, you know, that's like a Norm MacDonald quirk, I guess. Yeah. But it doesn't translate well to like the cinematic visual display of a stand-up netflix special because like well the camera just stays on him standing still for 60 minutes so there's like little things like that where it's like i it's tough to give letterbox scores to stand up because so much of them are just like filmically the same thing i think so and i think we talked a little bit about why mm. something like bo burnham's inside really does defer away from what you would call a not even just a conventional stand-up special, but just not being a stand-up special at all. Yeah, um, amalgamation of it. Yeah, uh, it, it pushes way more into, uh, in my opinion, I think we both got to that point mm. on the show where it's more a documentary than a stand-up special. Whereas, um, really, the the biggest dictator of of stand-up um, like scale and rating comes from, I think, a audience laughter and appeal. Um, mm. And B, how much you personally laugh at the jokes. Um, right. And so I, about the content of the jokes. The content, yeah. The content's definitely there. I, I think, but it's, it's part of the content delivering is uh, based on the person. Like, 
a big example, I, I think it's like, you know, a lot, a lot of the time, a lot of comedians, stand-up comedians, always get told their earlier specials and they're better than their latter, their latest, their latest stuff, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because things like fame and stuff can affect the, the subject matter that they're talking about in later. Right. It doesn't apply for everyone, but general rule of thumb, I would say so. I think that often later specials are less liked because people are like, well, you're in Hollywood now and you're talking about being in movies and stuff and it's a little disjointed from this grounded realism, like you're just this average Joe who's just really funny. And I I can definitely see that, but, you know, I do think that it's still very tough to grade because then it's also the, the subject matter too. Some people like, and then the yeah. the scope of like someone saying, if they watch a Bill Burr special and they give it one star because they hate his type of comedy. Yeah, if it's like the not, politics. You can't yeah. say they're wrong for that because it's just not their that, type yeah, that, of humor. That's what they're watching, exactly. Like they're 100% allowed to say it's one star because they're not like, you know, I think they're crazy, but you yeah, know, I, yeah. I get why like someone watches a Norm McDonald special and goes, yeah, this is not for me. Yeah. And it's kind of the other way around because I ended up giving it a three-star review even mm. though I was kind of like, I wasn't impressed whatsoever with the, the technical side of, of the thing. And that that's the other end of it is like, I'm not talking, I'm not rating it based on the politics or the content of the jokes, but just how is this presented in a visual medium, which is totally unfair yeah. because it's such a formulaic, it's like giving a TV show a bad rating because it's a TV show that's episodically broken up into parts and, and it's a status quo circle of storytelling. Like, it, yeah. that's just what it is. Yeah. And you can't really grade against it. So I always feel weird doing that. And and I, I thought he was funny in it, but I still prefer him, like, when he's on the cuff, thinking of stuff on the fly, not like a prepared mm-hmm. stand-up thing. And and maybe his earlier stuff is better. I'm not sure. But um, he's always been switched on. I was reading about how one of the last jokes he made publicly was... It was something about going back in time. Um, I can't remember. It was some Hitler joke, but he basically... Someone said, like, oh, well, it's too bad he's been dead for like 50 years. And Norm's response is, oh, I didn't even know he was sick. Which is funny because now you can easily grab a montage of people saying that about Norm having now passed away. And the amount of people who've used that exact line, I didn't even know he was sick. And it's just like this super meta, eerie joke beyond the grave that Norm mm. has made. And I think I think he's excellent. But um, I don't think any of that level of excellence is in the stand-up but you know it was a good way to honor him to watch one and yeah absolutely yeah i think he's great i've watched one other thing but i'll pass it to you first Zeke. what what have, what have you been watching i've done three sport documentaries this week Ooh, now well, i'll do the first one and then throw it back to you so this yeah, one cool. is isolated from the other two and that's why um right. this one's a quite a niche documentary i just stumbled across on amazon prime called grinders um oh, sport <laughs> yes um and it follows a uh, toronto-based filmmaker documentary uh Terrian filmmaker matt gallagher um and sort of how he you know at first gives a brief uh synopsis of his life and mm-hmm. that he was a documentary much like in my octopus teacher same sort of situation that we had sort of like meta thing but um where it's like oh we're gonna I'm going to give a biographical understanding of me before we proceed with kind of our documentary here. Right. And this one goes a little differently to my octopus teacher. And as I, you know, and is I'm way more bare bones in its, its production values, a 2011 documentary. And it 
definitely feels like it's really is this documentarian just has a camera like a boom like a classic mm. michael moore-esque like the, the the quality is definitely down it's not a refined piece as especially compared to the two i'm going to talk about after this right but what it does is it follows uh multiple different um poker players these texas hold'em poker players who um do this thing called well and one of them is actually a illegal gambling den owner so basically matt gallagher's character he was worn out by documentary like being a documentary uh tarian much like in mark was teacher and basically elected to he wasn't making enough, enough money and then the gfc hit because this is based in 2011 so found himself mm. out of a lot of work so elected to get by by going to a lot of these illegal gambling houses and you know he's a good poker player so he's playing poker and stuff to get by and he has you know a wife and at that point a newly born child too so that's kind right, of his okay. context and it doesn't stay with him the whole documentary but it comes back to him sporadically and then it focuses on other caricatures that are all doing different things to kind of make that big break. They're all looking for their uncut gems moment, basically. <laughs> one of them owns one of these like dens who, where they, they hide them in these commercial complexes and yeah. they, they pay the land uh, lords in cash. So, it, you know, it's all very under the table sort of, um, you know, classic sting sort of operation <laughs> stuff. And it, it's really interesting because it's like, there's that hustle there, that low-key yeah, hustle. Yeah, for sure. But then it leads to, like, the the guy who owns the gambling house gets locked out of his apartment and is told that if he doesn't pay the landlord six grand, he's going to sell all his stuff to another rival Ooh. club owner. So there's all that stuff. So they follow that story. And then yeah. on top of that, they follow this, like, larger-than-life sort of character, Andre, and he's trying to enter this reality show contest to get into, the, like, poker, like, po- like playing in... in texas holder like a texas yeah. holder show in in vegas like a reality <laughs> so show bizarrely versatile <laughs> and and then another one who is like he's actually starting to push the big breaks in like the world yep. series poker and stuff so he finishes 11th in like the world series like so he's still like up there, like he's getting there yeah yeah and like they all Climbing focus the on, like they, they look at different things like he interviews family like Andre is the one who's trying to get on the internet like reality show. It still lives with his mum and his dad, and they're like fully behind him doing. It. He's very much <laughs> like a like a you know more like a Will Ferrell sort of uh, John C. Riley Step Brothers esque kind of uh, guy. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like they talk about this idea that the whole point of grinding is is basically just like this is your only source. They're basically for these guys their only source of income. So they go, yeah. they spend their nights going to these places, winning money just to get by basically yeah um and of you know it would be cool we never really see a super rock bottom with a lot of them uh we follow like matt we go back to matt occasionally to like focus on the fact that his wife has just become pregnant but because they're quite a mature age couple she's actually had a lot of miscarriages so they focus on that part right, and yeah he actually over the duration of the doc we find out that this latest one miscarries yeah about halfway through which is quite tragic but it mostly focuses on, like, he deviates away. By the end of the doco, he's deviating from this gambling lifestyle and he's going to focus mm. on just his family and maintaining that relationship. It's got a lot going on. Yeah. And it's, it's only 78, 79 minutes. It says 52 on Letterbox, but it's it's, oh, it's an hour 10. Um, it's always weird when it's, like, just off, like, 20 minutes off or yeah. something like that. Yeah. It's got a lot going on. And mm. I kind of like that it's got a lot going on. Um 
definitely keeps your attention. Like I actually felt pretty positive about it. I felt positive about all three of them, but this one, right. because it's a bit rougher around the edges, I kind of like it for that because it's like, it's clearly like almost like just going with these things. Yeah. Like it very feels like a very It's not overproduced. Low, yeah. it's, it's not too it's just, much production. I mean, if yeah. you look at, I think he's the only one credited pretty much. It's Interesting. just him pretty much. It's yeah. like, so he's very much just, uh, I kind of, you got to love those ones where they just pick up the camera and they sort of just go on these, uh, yeah. like Shirker and stuff like that. What, yeah, that's a good one. Um, it reminds me a bit of Shot in the Dark, which we talked about a few weeks ago, the um, the Nightcrawler doco. Mm. That, that is a much more stretch. That's like eight episodes and goes on. But like the hustle behind it, it sounds very similar. And the fact mm. that like that's their money-making goal and like they have to just focus on that. Yeah. Um, which is going to somewhat tie into our film of the week a yes. little bit in terms of an industry. So hit me up with your other one, bud. Yeah, so the only other one I caught this week, I actually sort of talked about it a week or two ago as in it was coming to Netflix. So it was a very recent film, uh, Night Books, mm-hmm. which is, it's funny, I described it to you earlier as like, you know, very kid-friendly horror film. It's actually produced by Sam Raimi, which I didn't realize, but you can kind of tell because it does have its sort of quirkier side. It wasn't directed by him, I should clarify. But yeah, I sort of compared it to like Spiderwick Chronicles to you in in that you know it, it, there's sort of horror elements, but it's definitely more of a PG aimed at kids rating, and it's about these uh, two kids who've sort of been uh, entrapped by this witch who's perfectly cast as Christian Ritter. She kills it in that role because um, you could just you know she sort of has that um, sort of goth aesthetic as as Jane in Breaking Bad. But and then obviously Jessica Jones, sort of the same thing, like really dark hair and stuff. So like mm-hmm. playing a witch and it, actually really fashionable. She wears like all sorts of like insane outfits that are like <laughs> really luxurious, which I think works. Uh, she's perfectly cast in that. Uh, the witch is essentially taking these kids and forcing, we're well, forcing one of them to you know maintenance the house and the main kid Alex, who we follow to read her scary stories every night. He's like a horror film writer. And um, I thought it was sort of cutesy and fun in that way. I think it worked. Um, I actually like a lot when he's reading these stories. It, the film sort of takes a different presentational look. Mm-hmm. So it sort of has like an old-timey look with frame skips and they have like a cast of kids with like overproduced zombie makeup, kind of like in um, Super 8, which I thought was quite funny. Uh, yeah, it just kind of has that presentational thing and like the skies are red and it's a very clear fake set that they're on. So I, I like when the film gets a bit more experimental with that as Alex is telling the stories. It's only a couple of times they do that. Uh, but I really like that aspect of it. Otherwise, it's pretty standard, like, you know, your typical Netflix film, how that would be shot and lit. Um, but like it works for what it is. I like the exploration of the satiation um, deprivation as this kid is like a horror writer fan. So he likes writing horror stories. Um, but we actually start the film just before he's, like, encaptured by this witch. Like, throwing his stuff, ripping posters. Like, something has happened that's caused him to not want to do this anymore. Mm. And while this creates a great driving question throughout, which is something we talked about a lot in some of our screenwriting classes, the driving question, um, that they don't have to answer until the end of the film, keep your audience engaged. But I think the flip side was you don't actually get to know who this kid is. You don't really get a first act not properly. Yeah. Because literally four minutes in, he's already in the haunted apartment. Seven minutes in, we've already established the stakes, what he has to do to keep alive and meeting the witch and these characters. And it's like, this happens in four, five, six minutes of the film. It's like, where's the first act? <laughs> like, where, where's the relationship he has with his parents or his friends or anything like that? And I get it. They're hiding a lot of that backstory because it's part of that driving question. But 
I also felt like, you know, a little bit of whiplash. Like, we just jump right into the story. It's a bit like um, Luca, the new Pixar film. Mm. Pixar's been doing that. Like, they're just, like, speeding through their first act, just jumping right into the the story, which I think... I don't like when they do that because you don't have time to actually, like, relax and get to know the characters and what you're actually doing. So that that was sort of my only nitpick with the film. It doesn't mean that I didn't like. It doesn't mean that I didn't come to like Alex as a character or care for the characters. Um, I think it all plays out well. It's just... It feels like it jumps right in, and it's almost a little too quick. Um, but yeah, like I said, the, the satiation, deprivation of him not wanting to write and then being forced to continue to write, just adding to that satiation. And I don't think I don't think I'm reading too deeply into the film either, because there's even a line that the kid Yasmin says, where she makes a comment like, "Oh, I used to like peanut butter," as in that that's all she has now. And it's like I think like that's a direct commentary on what's happening with Alex and his writing. So. There's plenty to take away from that. Just the um, even like the fantasy fairy tale elements. The second half of this film is a straight up retelling of Hansel and Gretel. Mm. Like there's a lot of cool inspirations and they weave it in very cleverly. So I definitely recommend seeing it if you're up for like a cute little fun scary horror film. Then yeah, just reading on it right now. Oh, cool. Um, what are you What are you reading, sir? I was just like looking at uh, sort of where I'd seen her before outside of Breaking Bad too. Oh um, well, yeah, Jessica Jones. She's in um. What's that sitcom? It's like it's sort of like a new girl esque thing. I, I'm I'm trying to think, but yeah, she she's been around the block. I I think she's great. I think she became a mother as well around the. I think there's a famous photo of her at the El Camino premiere with like her big pregnant belly. <laughs> Either that or right. she had like just given birth like the week before. Um, yeah, I've seen like Mona Lisa smile and stuff like that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, she's great in the role. Yeah, intriguing. Perfectly uh, cast witch. Well, speaking of Netflix, Jake. Ooh, um, okay. So I've just touched on um, a really interesting series, and it's it's such an interesting way of just because they're all singular, but mm. they're a part of this collection. There's currently five of them sitting on Netflix, and they are basically the the, the best way is the, the Untold series, and so what they are. Uh, a collection of feature-length documentaries that focus on different aspects of sport. Um, oh, okay, and they're all part of like a series. They're but all they're, they're all got, like they've all got like untold colon and then and they all have ah, their own. Okay, they're directed and shot by reasonably the same crews and stuff. Right, but they've actually they've all been added. I've watched two of them so far. Um, in which one of them definitely gave me the feeling it was going to, and they've all got their own kind of still unique uh, flares that are in, mm. out of the two that I've seen. They both were distinctive enough. Like, um, and I'll touch on it. Why? Because um, so the first one I'm going to talk about is, is it's untold. They've all got kind of puns on their, uh, their, <laughs> their preceding titles Cheeky that tie puns. into the sport. For yeah. example, um, untold breaking point. Obviously, a break point is a point in tennis in which you. I can't. I don't actually know what a break point is in tennis, but it is an expression used in. I don't know what it is. I know there's match point. Yeah, well, break point's like. I think it's like breaking the, the cycle of. I'm sure someone will tell me on the. Tell me what a break point <laughs> is in tennis. I know it's a. When you someone get to knows. the end of a. Like a game. Like a, a round. I think I'm rounds. Anyway, I don't. Yeah, they're called it's sets. Is the full thing, but like match is because um, it's like fifteen per, isn't it? Is no, it? it's it's the first to seven in a set, and that's a set, right? And then it's first to win multiple sets wins the match. But I can't remember what the is. It just a round? I thought there was individual? a number multiplied by fifteen per like serve. 
Oh, yeah, it is. It's 1530, 40. Okay, fuck. cool. Yeah. So you were right. There's like a massive tennis fan, like expert listening to this podcast, just wants to drive off a cliff right now. <laughs> so it was really, but it was really interesting because like it focused on sort of the, um, this one really, this one followed the career of America, American tennis player Marty Fish. Right. And particularly his uh, relationship with um, like Andy Roddick and they're like, they're following... And it, it mixed biographical, but it also talked about a lot of the mental anxiety and what, like, basically just followed his career. This one was a bit more standardized. Okay. But they did do some creative things and they, they like, focused on, and I love exploring uh, different worlds and documentaries. And I didn't know too much about that. Uh, very clean, very crisp, great cinematography. Mm. Uh, I have to give a shout out because the two I've watched do have the same, uh, uh, I think his name's uh, Adam Stone. Uh, I'll have to correct that. Um, they don't actually have him quoted on the on the letterbox, which is annoying. Oh, interesting. Um, they've only got the directors. Maybe there's multiple directors per episode, or there it was a Chapman Way and McLean Way are the two that are billed on the two that I've watched for okay. directing. But I they do like the same. It's really interesting because it like the closest thing I can equate them to is like a Vice special or like like mm. like, but they still have their own unique. Um sort of presentation formats and um, quirks that help kind of genre divide the two. So I have to juxtapose both of them. Um, basically that one followed just the career of, of Marty Fish and sort of the anxiety and stress and mostly focused on how he eventually became like a spokesperson for, for like, you know, sort of tennis players talking about that anxiety stuff because he ended up having like a break, like a mental break before a game before Roger, playing Roger Federer. Yeah. And sort of that win at all costs mentality that you know kind of cost a lot of them their sort of their mental their mental health um with comp- trying to keep up and competing with you know some of these top of the top of the range players like you know Federer and Nadal and stuff and Djokovic so it's that was interesting that one was a little bit more conventional nothing bad at all by it but definitely more sound and it's like nothing that would be as as, as wasn't quite as entertaining as the other one I watched which was called Crime and Penalties which if you know anything about penalty. ice hockey's penalties uh, are oh, of a course, thing in, in, yep. in ice hockey. So I knew it was penalty. I knew that was the key word there. Yeah. yeah. So I like. <laughs> I'm liking these like little little puns they're doing with them. But this one was a, another one. Um, this one actually was really interesting. And the best way it's been described is that the Mighty Ducks meets a Martin Scorsese film, okay. <laughs> which are kind of fun, funny. Um, I can totally see that as well. So basically, what happened was. Um, there's this little small town in uh, called Danbury in Connecticut, Danbury. and basically, um, easy way to start, like to they set the the tone is there's this guy who's kind of one of the chief investors in this town. He runs the waste management business in in Danbury, and, and most of the um, quite a he has one of the largest ones in the East Coast, mm-hmm. and he's basically he's mil- this millionaire philanthropist with what is at this point deeply implied connections with the italian mob um oh, no. and um basically uh his um we get set up with the whole idea of this commissioner of uh the uhl which if you know anything about it's basically the equivalent of in afl like the waffle it's the state right, league okay. it's what they call the minor leagues because it does tie into a region and basically these minor league players go on and play in the national hockey league the nhl but Basically, after a, stint, a brief stint in prison, 
his dad buys his 17-year-old son this hockey team called mm. the Dan... And name it, and names it appropriately, the Danbury Trashers. <laughs> Trashers. And I kid you not, Jay, it is one of the... It's, it, I, I got... When I watched the trailer, I got fire vibes because of just the... That's right. Kind yeah. of the perfect mix of, of this, this undertone crime clearly happening. Yeah. In the mix of this kind of fun, cultish thing. And honestly, it's probably the closest thing I've seen to fire... Since fire. Okay, interesting. Um, Just in terms of being a documentary. It was entertaining. Content. The characters were drastically funny, the people that were yeah. Basically, this hockey team, because Danbury didn't have a sports team and stuff, and this 17-year-old was a massive fan. He grew to love ice hockey and loved professional wrestling, so created his whole team basically around goons, who are the guys who pick fights with players, in the and would and basically... At the same time, it's mm-hmm. like this team was the biggest thugs of this 2005 <laughs> league. Like, they would have eight or nine fights a game and just beat the crap out of, like, on top. This town yeah. became cultish fans of this club and would, like, absolutely, they would go, to, they would sell out minor league hockey games, which is not heard of. Oh, my God. And, like, abuse the crap out of away teams. And, like, it became <laughs> this most cultish, like, thing and on top of that yep. on top of that jake it got even crazier it's like this this team ended up being they, they finished second and they've like completed like like they, they did the whole cinderella story in the first season right got to the final <laughs> on top of this there's this big fbi in- investigation happening on the under 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 part about this father who's tied to the mob and definitely has and they're like yeah. the fbi is systematically planting bugs at the arena and the waste plant <laughs> While this son is so just like, brilliant. it's it had everything. It was so <laughs> fun and chaotic. Like, and of course, by the end of the season, they had to suspend the club and they disbanded the club, oh. much to Danbury completely erupting. And this commissioner of the UHL hated them at first, thought they were just the worst thing to happen to the game. But because of the NHL, the National League, they had a lockout because of contract disputes. Right. So players stopped playing for the NHL. Some of the NHL players started playing for this team. <laughs> <laughs> so they ended up, like, becoming... And, and they're they bringing would... in tickets as well. Yeah. Like tons of, yeah. At this point, they had 10,000 people lining up to go oh watch some game God. of hockey. Not to mention <laughs> this, this team called the Trashers who would just <laughs> beat the crap out of players. Like, to the point where, like, legitimately, there was a section called Section 102 that would stand right behind the away bench and just hurdle murdering death threats at them. Oh, my God. Like, it was the most hostile territory, and it was just fascinating because all of this stuff's happening while, like, the FBI's investigating the mob attachments and stuff, (laughs) and it just absolute brewing vat of just chaos. You you have earned, I'm going to click it. You've earned a watch list ad. There you go. Fantastic. Now my watch list. And it's a shame because I watched that one first and I've still got the other three to watch and I don't know if they're going to all... They're all going to be interesting. that, yeah. But this one had, like I said, I honestly probably going to up my grade because it was that entertaining the whole way through. Yeah. Because of just like the the way this, this team in a town that didn't have a team at all for anything somehow got ice hockey, which in America is even an even more difficult thing because it's like, you know, for them, ice hockey takes a couple of rungs back. If you're especially on the East Coast, it's more about, you know, football and, and, and basketball and, and stuff. So for this yeah. team to become, just by systematic events, become this apparent, like the film finishes literally with them doing a 15, this 102 did an unofficial 15-year reunion because of the bonds they made. <laughs> 
And I'm not going to lie, at the end of the movie, years. I like started looking on eBay for like a Trashers jersey. Oh and they my reopened. God. I thought you were going to say you are going to start crying. No, they reopened, they reopened the shop, so I might buy a Trashers jersey. Oh my God. <laughs> so this did this drop like in the last week or something? This The tra- trailer I watched was three weeks old, so I think it's okay, come so out. Okay, so it's pretty recent. Yeah. I don't yeah. really know how this, this, this series is fascinating to me. They have five feature-length documentaries, all isolated, all yeah. having slight differentiations in their flair and directorial style too, which I really like. This one it, yeah. definitely played more into its fire-esque elements. Like, they would do, like, like systematic pattern framing where they'd have three guys yeah. reacting to the same <laughs> thing. Like, there was definitely, like, it was more like a caper was going on. Yeah. And then there'd be, like, FBI chain uh, uh, agents that would turn into, like, lawyers and representatives for the mob and they would flip, they would literally change it from, like, the name FBI agent to, oh, bad guy now. (laughs) (laughs) God, yeah. No, I 1,000% have to watch this. Even just for the fire-esque, like, flair. It has the fire-esque flair. That's awesome. doesn't have, like, like, it doesn't feel like has the same sort of anxiety that fire has with the building to the d-day-esque moment right yeah but the, just the story's so bizarre just how they managed to kind of completely shift a culture and even the yeah. commissioner guy who hated them went they were bringing people to our league and our game like it yeah. brought a different relevancy to it and it made no sense that it did but it like it just kept happening so he like he ended up yeah he like like it's fascinating how it unfolds yeah like nah, all collectively insane. i love that well, it's funny because even just that that concept of like something that maybe is morally wrong, but it, it sort of advances the industry that you're working with. Again, that's another little thing that just slightly ties into ties into our film of the week. No dramas. Like. Well, do you have anything you'd like to add in your career section before we move into the film of the week? I kind of do, but I'm actually going to talk about it within the context of the film of the week. Oh, oh, <laughs> a lot of cross section stuff. A little breaking and bending of our of our categories, Zeke, of our structure. I like it. No dramas. <laughs> well, it's make time another pig joke. for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? In case you didn't realize, Zeke, we're watching Pig. I'm looking for a truffle pig. Someone star. I don't understand. Tell me you are. You made the right choice being out there in the woods. There's nothing here for you anymore. There's really nothing here for most of us. Buy yourself a new pig. What are you thinking? I remember every meal I ever cooked. I remember every person I ever served. You live your life for them, and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. We don't get a lot of things to really care about. Where's my pig? Living alone in the Oregon wilderness, Truffle Hunter returns to Portland to find the person who stole his beloved pig. Nice and succinct. I like it. Yes. So, so, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a movie about a pig. 
it's very is it a movie about a pig? Mm. This is the real this is the real fundamental. What, what is the film really about, Zeke? It's not about a pig, I don't think. <laughs> Although that is the the drive in it. Um Yeah, this mm. this film's really interesting because, you know, we talked a little bit about the uh, the buzz this this film had behind it. Mm. I, I know quite a few people that really wanted to see this film, yeah. and you know, I I think I said on the show last we, week we didn't end up inviting them to our screening. <laughs> we did have a lot of people at our screening for a, yeah the time that we went and saw it's it. Like seven p.m. Sunday. Granted, mm. the day before a public holiday, but yeah, it was it was semi packed cinema. Yeah, a little too much so. I was really annoyed at how loud those old people were. They were all really old people. Um, <laughs> like a really old man. Yeah. This is an interesting film. And I, I think we walked away from this film kind of a little stumped on where to take the conversation about mm. how we felt about the film. And I think I'm still struggling a little bit now because there's no aspect of this film that I particularly dislike. or, But I thought everything I watched was what i watched right that can be sometimes really tough to go okay what's really at the core of this film because i feel like i have really identified what's at the core of this film and didn't really know where else to take it yeah i think it's it's interesting because there have been plenty of times when we've watched films that have either surprised us in terms of where the plot goes i mean you know for me the greatest examples of films like kajillionaire and parasite like you kind of go and not knowing anything about them and you're so rewarded for that because mm-hmm. it just goes in such a bizarre, interesting direction. Um, and then even films like this where we went into it fairly blind. Well, I mean, that was the premise and that's sort of what they've sold this film. The idea of like, oh, it's Nick Cage and he's actually good in this and he's looking for his pig that he loves has been stolen. And that's the premise and it looks weird and odd and go for it. And I think the fact that this film and we're like, you know, we're going to jump straight into spoilers or mm-hmm. if you want to go in blind, um, I, I would recommend you go see this film, but um, don't have any ridiculously high Parasite-esque expectations of it. It's yeah. you, you, it, What you see is what you get. But I think that it almost, I don't want to say it hurts this film, but the fact that it plays out kind of exactly how you expe- expect it to play out in a lot of ways or it doesn't deviate in any interesting directions i i think it it's gonna i i mean i gave it what like a three and a half score i thought it was well very well made but i think it's going to be forgettable yeah i think that's that's pretty much it though i Mm. mean it's like i also sat on a three and a half for it and i i 100% agree with that consensus i think it's it's it it sets out exactly it accomplishes exactly what um, it sets out to do and maybe things like the budget and stuff we need to really think about because that might like the fact that what they get out of whatever or, you know the budget is I imagine it's not high at all um, is quite impressive and it's, it's mm. a well like things like it's a well shot film it's a well lit film it has very naturalistic lighting which I really I would love quite. to talk about the lighting soon, um, yeah which I really like uh, its absence of music, but then mix uh, uh, a couple of times where it mixes the music. It's, it's quite profound and quite great. Mm. Um, some of the monologues are very well put together, mm. um, particularly the dialogue exchange between certain characters is great at times. Um, and his performance is very strong. Um, his is probably the, 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 the biggest tick because 
he is has have always been for me a very tough actor to watch. All right, just, you're the biggest Nick Cage fan. No, no, he, he just he sits honestly in this very similar category to someone like Mark Wahlberg, and I know now we've now <laughs> seen two cont- uh, two films in short succession where we've had to watch that Joe Bell trailer. I just can't get my head around wanting to watch Joe Bell, um, <laughs> but not to be too tangential. But no, uh, no, I think it's fair. Think it's, fair. Um, it's like. This film is interesting because, yeah, I do think going in blind is the best way to do it because it really kind of takes the whole John Wick s presence and really grounds it in reality, like grinds it into reality. Mm. Like this is really what would happen if someone yeah, had a very. I think mean, I mean, John Wick is a lot more satisfying than this film is, in a lot of ways, because of the violence, because of the fun, more flair aspect of the law building, and and this doesn't have that. This is very straightforward. Here's a a man who's you know, he's desperate, however you want to use that term, desperate. Yeah, it was, it was definitely good that I got to watch that. Uh, I talked about it a little bit earlier in the year when I saw the the Italian documentary about truffle hunters. Mm, yes. Um, because although truffle hunting is not a... It definitely doesn't take a huge... Uh, apart, from, apart from its commentating on its relevancy in the food industry, um, mm. does tie into the plot a little bit. Yep. Um, I, the most important thing that I got from that, but although both those points are there... Um, was this relationship these hunters had with their animals was very right. profound and very important. So definitely got the associativeness there. Um, I, I find this really interesting. There was another really interesting trivia fact that they re- really want to do this in Spain or France, which would have been a little bit more... Oh, that would be interesting. Um, this kind of does feel like almost a remake of a, of a foreign language film. Kind of the way Rams yeah. that in, in WA is... A, is very clearly inspired from another yeah, film. Yeah, I like the Portland, Oregon setting. Um, yeah, doesn't yeah. detract from where they ended up. It was obviously probably due to financial reasons, but it doesn't detract from the film at all. No, and in fact, I've actually pulled up a letterbox review, which I'll get into later, but it actually talks very specifically about why Portland is actually really important to... No, maybe not necessarily the plot, but the, the whole commentary on like the industry and the, the Portland people, so to speak, um, which we'll get into soon, but it's interesting, the the choice of yeah, Portland, I, yeah. Perhaps something like Spain or France could have been a little bit more universal. Mm. Um, okay, yeah. Because I do think sometimes these explicit American cities do alienate us a little bit. It's great that, you, you know, you found something that can give you a little bit of grander production. I don't know too much about Portland, Oregon. Right, um, yeah. Uh, I kind of get the idea of what Oregon is representative to something that we could probably ground in a more Australian context. Mm. Um, but I, and we'll obviously talk a little bit more about the plot later on, but it, yeah, I, I think for the most part, everything ticks boxes or hits a good pass point. There's nothing in this film that frustrates me. Everything, every scene feels like it needs to be in there. The plot's yeah. very tight. Which is funny because uh, another fact that I read earlier was that there was a two hour plus cut of this film. Which makes me very happy that he was willing to be disciplined and cut things that yeah, he sure. thought didn't, which I like that refinement. I like yeah. the fact that... It's, it's not boring. It's, it doesn't overstay its welcome. No. It doesn't end any, you know, shorter or longer than it needs to. Yeah. So yeah, I thought the pacing was perfectly fine. I just think it just doesn't get to that never, that next, like you said, that next level, that parasite level, that level of of surprising reward or return, maybe. Yeah, I think because... You actually put it best when we walked out yesterday, but yeah, it was something along the lines of, you know, there, there were no surprises. 
And you don't need a surprise for a film to be good. And I'm not saying this film isn't good, but it it is one of those things where, you know, the, there's certain films we watch we take so much away. And like I mentioned, Kajillion earlier, that's a film where, like, I'm just, like, scribbling notes down as I'm watching from scene to scene because there's just so much being thrown at me in terms of what's being said, what's being shown, um, just the attitude of the characters, the thematic relevance, like, all these things. And I'm watching this film that is very deliberate. It's quite... You know, I think it's perfectly paced. It's perfectly fine, finely paced. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is deliberately slow. Not boring, but slow. There's a very different things or distinguishable things. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, it just goes back to that concept of you see what you get. And, I, you know, there's things I'm noticing with the visual storytelling at the beginning I think is really great. And um, I sort of made that joke earlier with Nick Cage like oh you know just make sure he has a stern look doesn't speak too much and give him a beard and like dirty clothes and people will call it a good performance but that was me being really harsh because he actually does have excellent monologues and excellent dialogue moments in this film so he is authentically really good in it um he's held back and there's even that scene where he is like kicking the car and losing his shit and that like I bought that it wasn't like a not the bees it wasn't like a over-the-top performance. Like, he really is grounded in this, and I think yeah. it works really wonderfully. And that probably just comes back to direction. And again, you mentioned the director yeah. earlier. Um, or, no, you, you were, sorry, I think you are talking about the other film. Mike Wasanowski. Oh, you were talking about him. Um, this is his fe- feature debut, which I was That's a good debut. surprised by. Yeah, I think he co-directed a seven-minute film called That. Um, but according to Letterboxd, this is his first film, which I was surprised by because there is a confidence behind it. It is slow and methodical. Um, I like the tone a lot. I think it, it could have been even darker. But in terms of visual storytelling, I thought it was all there. I think... Th- I love... Even the scene when he goes down to the underground sort of Fight Club-esque <laughs> situation. <laughs> and there's very, very few words spoken in that whole scene. A lot of it is him scribbling his name on the wall. People putting down, like, the basically the bets. The actual fight where he doesn't fight back. And that's one thing we can compare to John Wick is that he is not a violent man whatsoever. Yeah, I think um, it's really interesting because the, the Wick comparisons are there because it's like his name is a, a Bubba Yeager-esque yeah, yep, feeling. It and it, But it's kind of done where it's, like I said, when I say it grinds to the reality halt, it's like it does grind it down. His name does have to strike some form of fear or seriousness in people, but it's not in the way that he's going to kill you or he's a master hitman. It's... It's the legacy that he left when he left this industry 15 years ago. Yeah, it's a level of respect. Yeah. And it's almost like an opportunity for them, like, oh, my God, I get to talk to this person. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, yeah, it's comparable to John Wick, like you said, because of of the effect of the name and just simply whispering the name is going to have an effect on people. And I love that aspect of it. But it's interesting looking at it from this perspective that we haven't talked too much about, but this film being a huge not even that subtle of an allegory towards like industry and business and um, you know, the people that are in that and what are their goals in that industry. And I think that's perfectly juxtaposed between, you know, Nick, uh, Nick Cage and Alex Wolf's character, who obviously he's like luxurious and has like, you know, the newest car and the newest phone and all of this stuff. And even though they sort of have this weird relationship going on, obviously it's a business relationship yeah, I mean, he's, he's, well, he's a, a son of a, a, a business tycoon in this, this you know, this 
culinary business. Yeah. So it, it, he's definitely trying to step out from his father's shadow. His father has this almost godfather level of mm. fear over the, the Portland, Oregon area um, in which he is trying to be the, the son that steps out apart from it and carves his own identity, but is always kind of under that thumb but also perceives the industry solely as it's a money-makes-the-world-go-round sort of situation. And yeah. Well, virtually every character, to some extent, has that mindset where it is money-based and status-based and power-based. Yeah. And there is this hierarchy. and, and Or servant, uh, servancy-based. Like, yeah. Um, that they have to conform within the system, otherwise the system will chew them up, spit them out, and then they'll be they'll be nothing. They'll yeah. they'll be they'll be a, 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 and that's a big thing about being invisible in this film. Like being not seen at all is worse than um, conforming to be seen in some light. Um, yeah. Well, that, that, that this is a, there's a time for you. This is your moment, and that you know, our yeah. lead he's has lost his moment, even though his name has that effect and. And like I was saying, I think it doesn't have that John Wick effect of fear. It's respect and the fact that, you know, in the in the local industry that, you know, I've explored it and some of the people that I've met that, have, that are more on that wealthy side, that are more on the side of having, you know, made impacts in, in the film industry in one way or another. Um, it is about the name. It is about selling, you know, even more so than money, although there is really no... There's not a lot of money in film here in the WA side of it. No, but, but the principles stay the same. Well, exactly. The attitudes and the personalities, the the the, the desperate need to get ahead. Even in the those who get the microscopic amount of money is more than no money, and that well, like in it, itself yeah. is a get a gargantuan leap in industry. You know, it's like it's like how we perceive the the f- few people here in the West Australian film industry that get funded by Screen West and get to make you know, dramatic films and they get to be the head honchos of those projects are astronomical leaps ahead of those who are slugging it out in the, in the bottom, you know? Yeah, so. and it's funny because I was talking to a friend recently and I'm, I'm not going to say his name on here, but the, that was one of the conversations we were having is like in the US, you have like 50 different distributors or people who will fund your film. Yeah. And over here, if you don't get it, if Screen West doesn't give you money, then who in the hell is going to give you the money, at least in this state, in the WA region. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to get too much into that discussion, but my, my thinking is the people that I know that are like entrenched in that system or even just a business-savvy system. And that's part of the reason I mentioned I'm going to leave my career section to this part of the film because I commented to you, it is really eerie that we just watch this film that, that talks about this, even in sort of a more subtle way. On the front of it, it's about a guy trying to find his pig but it's really about like the wants and needs of a person stuck in an industry and as someone who recently just resigned a job because i want i don't want to be a part of that that chase that grind to like be the best in this industry i kind of just want to chill out a little bit more you know i want to make something comfortable for myself and have that time and you know having people that i know in that industry well, it's, just it, desperate it's also about the repression of creative expression and this is mm. done in the form of like the culinary artwork and and you know we're going to probably talk about that, a, a prominent scene that really shows this uh, about halfway through the film yep. Yep. a little later on um but the the fact of the matter is what becomes evident is 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 um feld's departure from um portland's uh you know high culinary scene is is due to stuff that you know, it was personal factors very clearly, but also mm. on top of that, it, it's this, rep- like the, honestly, the pr- pretentiousness and, and pompousness of this industry that mm. has become so seasonal. And he doesn't, it's not about what 
he really wants to do or creatively express. It's about what the system expects of him. And I mean, that's what motivates the the film's core thing of why this pig gets taken in the first place. Well, that's it. It's about the industry taking it back because they have something to gain from this pig that's not about a relationship, an interpersonal relationship, or just like a simple want. And you have Nick Cage's character who wants that simple life, has lived in the woods for 15 years and loves his pig for the sake of loving the pig. And the film doesn't really go into... It's almost just a state of fact. The film is like, this guy and this pig... uh, they have this relationship and he loves the pig. Like, you know, it's like a pet, you know? And then the pet is taken away and he goes on this vengeful quest to find the pig. And I think just the simplicity of the wants of this character who got out of the game 15 years ago, you know, because you're right, there's many factors, there's creative stifling and just the potentials of those around him. I had to chuckle a little because it's like, Mm. you know, like you take the start of John Wick and it's like he's there watching the... Um, the real sad montage, like dead girlfriend videos, which we've talked oh, yeah. about that that kind of cliche. We made that the, joke, I think, last the, week, whether on the uh, show, where it's like, the the, oh no, stop filming me and stuff. And then when he plays like the start of that mixtape, tape. which is the exact <laughs> same sort of like, exact. Oh, stop that! Get <laughs> that away I just, from me. Like, chuckled. I'm like, oh, it's the Povo version of what yeah, John yeah, Wick yeah. was doing in his two story house. This, <laughs> is the, this is the lamb shack. He's getting the D batteries, putting him into the. But the, that's that's the funny thing is that 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 feels so underexplored doesn't it in a lot of ways yeah look i i think of it actually one of the biggest attractions of the film but then this could be the this could be the most important thing about grievance and loss that this film talks about with mm. not only um nicholas cage's character of robert feld but also robin feld um also um you know alex wolf's character mm. because obviously he has a very different situation where um, I think his journey and his arc comes from the fact that he can say goodbye to clearly, mm. who, you know, this this person that's could like, you know, you know, we find out his mum is not dead, yep. uh, as he reveals that, you know, she's actually in, in a life support situation. She's probably comatose and barely clinging onto it. She's like obviously very much a shade. I know they always love her. They, they love this film. Loves talking about shades and shadows and mm. and and uh, go you know, so apparitions. But it's very much so, like very apparent in that way, and, and to the point where we don't actually even see her on camera at all. We certainly see it from yeah, confiscated perspective, which I find really interesting. They uh, they obscure that, but that really shows how little he's dealing with that grief, or that grief still there and apparent. Right. And I think this film's trying to say, much like its pacing, is how grief is such a slow and methodical thing. It's not something that gets over over. A, a small period of time it's you know albeit there's probably gonna be the first of my ratatouille comparisons here but <laughs> grief and loss of family members is, is addressed obviously in a much fluffier way in that in that film i think and yeah. the memory of especially through food and color culinary exploration is is so light-hearted in the film and that doesn't make it better or worse in fact it's, you would still probably argue ratatouille is probably a better film but it's like yeah <laughs> it's a, di- a totally different um genre tone and stuff but yeah like i said this is the more grounded realism version of that the fact that he probably isn't completely over the fact that he's clearly you know you, you assume we make the assumption it's a dead wife in this for robin yeah quite possibly um someone he owned that business with and that really led to 
and the only form of connection that he has is with this animal, which, you know, that's pretty normal uh, coping mechanism. Mm. But his recovery is much slower and has become something that will happen maybe eventually, but he's not in a, he was never in a rush for it because he removed himself from the world. <laughs> he didn't need to... Like, I think grief is... That's such an interesting commentary on grief. The fact that it's a much slower process. It's not something... Yeah that necessarily you're going to completely get over in the course of 90 minutes. Well, I'm wondering if the allegory for grief's actually spread out throughout the journey of him, like, actively trying to find who took his pig and then, and then hunt him down. Yeah, you know, much like the Babadook, where it's like, you could definitely read that film as, like, each act, you know, if you break down the acts from three to, like, five, each act is a, a moment of grief or, or part of that process. Mm. Um, but for me, because I was so focused on like the the commentary allegories of of the industry and people obsessed with career and the name and all of that, that I didn't really pay attention to any of the grief stuff. Because to me, when I'm watching the beginning of the film, it's obviously very peaceful. You know, he's out in the, the woods and the nature and the sound of it and all the shots. You know, they're nice clean tripod shots and him and his pig are eating. The music sort of swells. Mm. It's lovely. It's it's wonderful. So when he you know plays that tape, I'm sure there's a sense of grief there. But it's sort of overshadowed by the niceness of what's happening prior to that. And, you know, it's reflected in the camera. I noticed the camera's way more shaky, way more that handheld rough feel to it. Like when we're in the city or, you know, down yeah, in the, the fight club area. Like that was really noticeable how much the camera starts to move once he gets out of his comfort zone. But he doesn't know the pig's dead until the last the last couple of scenes. Mm. And I think that that final ending is, I don't want to say anticlimactic. I was actually talking about this to a friend earlier today, and I compared it to On the Rocks. I'm not going to spoil On the Rocks, the Sofia Coppola film, but that's the one that we very much said that feels like an anticlimactic film because the thing that we're focusing on, even though the story is really about, you know, a daughter and a father, yeah. the the actual physical, like, plot of it kind of ends very anticlimactically without spoiling sure. it. And I feel like this kind of does too... I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying that I was surprised that he never found the pig at the end, but it just felt like in terms of an exploration of grief, it felt really undercooked in yeah. a lot of ways. I guess he just... I mean, by the end, does he... But I think it's, uh, mm. you know, and it's like, I definitely think his, his grief has not ended at that point. And, yeah, for sure. I, um, yeah. I think he's developed a little bit of a rapport with Wolf's character at that point. So, that, you know, there might be the start of a slowly progressive relationship there. But it's going to be yeah, the start I, of a very good friendship. <laughs> I think it, I think it's definitely the fact that there is no conclusive. It doesn't it feel mm. it feels a little undercooked, pun intended, um, <laughs> of that. Uh, nice. Uh, ending i understand See, why you, you were pun intended i was pun unintended okay. so i like that um like i i definitely think that that that's intended because it's like this just another chapter in that slow progression towards really accepting the loss of not only the pig but obviously clearly the the catalyst the pig was representing which is this yeah this partner sure. which is why he's willing to listen to the song to its completion at the end of the film yeah um, well, I want to ask you about that song. You're obviously a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. It's a cover. It's a cover from, uh, I guess, yeah, like you said, I guess his wife. Or I'm on fire. The dead wife. Um, I I listened to I listened to the song earlier today because I was I still couldn't wrap my head around what what is the importance of this song. What does it say about the ending of this film? And the only thing I could really take away, I was reading that apparently 
Well, not apparently. It's it's definitely in there. It's one of the more... It's considered one of the more creepier lyrical love songs. It is. Like, the way he talks about this person in the song. it feels like an older man, younger woman situation. Yeah, it's like the baby girl type yeah. lyrical thing. And um, my only association was, I guess, that sort of being a more taboo side of the song, maybe because of the taboo relationship he has with his pig. Not that it's taboo in the sense that they have sex or anything. He's very specifically has a line in this film, I do not have sex with my pig. Yeah. <laughs> so he should make that very abundantly clear. But He's easily one of the most odd, fine Alamo mm. songs like that I've, I've heard in a film. Because right. it's like, it's cover... And it's obviously it's meant to be a personable cover cover from this, yeah. this for his lover. for his for his birthday specifically. And yeah. I, I walked even immediately when I heard the song. I said, "Turn to you." I went. Oh, it's a very odd choice for a Springsteen yeah. song. Yeah. Like you know, we take a, a very early episode of our show um, with Thunder Road. It's very clear the importance of that song in tying to the story, yeah. um, and that it's constantly brought up throughout the the feature. Um, and it's even apparent in the short film what that song represents. And, and there are other moments with songs where there's a little bit more ambiguity, but you can kind of get it. I still, right now, cannot really get it. It's a romantic song, but yeah, it is a bit more of a, a creepier one. But Yeah. I, I That's the only connection I could have made is, I guess, him and the pig's relationship is, is a weird one. I guess it's a love song. So, yeah. Like, that's, yeah. that's probably might be it. Like, it's a... <laughs> I think there might have been a better song out there. We could have what well, in. It's interesting because, like, when we talked about Thunder Road, we talked about. I'm pretty sure we we would have talked about this on our podcast. Is like the financial struggle to even just get the rights to play that song, even in the short film, let alone the actual. What well, doesn't feature. get played in the the feature? Exactly. Um, and I'm wondering for a film of this low budget that they had to shoot it in. But they still it, got 20 the cover. Days? The covers. The covers. They still have to I, pay I, licensing. This. I guess the cover would be cheaper. I guess. Yeah. Um, okay, that's I a wonder, good point. I, I've always wondered how covers work. I haven't can't. You got to pay more people slightly less money. <laughs> I yeah, guess that's how it would work. I would assume that's how it works because the cover would have to get approval from the original artist. Yeah. So I feel like the original artist would still have to approve the use of that cover, but even maybe not get paid for it financially. Possibly there was. This is I don't remember the details, but I remember when the Last of Us Part Two video game came out. It was just before. It was like a TV spot, like a 30-second spot. They played a cover of a song that apparently... And this would have all gone through like Sony and like the game company, the developer, Naughty Dog and all that. The original artist of the song like cleared it, but the uh, cover artist who actually sings the song didn't clear it, which was really interesting. So that if you want to look into that... I'm sure you can Google it. That's a I would I would imagine right there. there's probably a pre-financial agreement between the original artist and then the cover artist. So they they already have that part mm. of the lane sorted to so say 10% goes to the original artist, 90% to the cover artist. You pay them a thousand bucks, 900, 100 respectively. Mm. But then they would still both have to greenlit the use of it in your media that would be and of course that's like a very bare bones situation i doubt this costs a grand but it's a easy no, way abs- of yeah exactly math mathing it out i think that's how but, it would work yeah but simply coming back it, exactly. to more importantly what the song represents in the context of the film yep I, <laughs> i'm a bit i am i'm a draw in a blank normally i'm really good with this stuff this one i, yeah. I was a little confused i like the song i've always liked the song but it's just it's a it's a strange one because it's not like a dead lover kind of song. It's right. kind of a, which is, 
It's interesting to me. But maybe, maybe that's part of it. Is maybe the fire and passion is an important part. Like I'm on fire. I'm like in a passionate, burning love, which might be a reflection of yeah. time. Well, and I mean, obviously the the passion passion is a big part of this film from different ways. For his passion and desire to find the pig. Yeah, and then ties that back to the lost passion and love that he had for cooking and, and yeah. the culinary side. Yeah, so maybe the, oh, I might have I might have been onto something. <laughs> I mean, you you even just mentioned it. Then it's not a song about loss. Which is might even in and itself be interesting that it's it's not about sure. him losing the pig, but the the love is still there. And I shouldn't uh, not skimp over this as well. We walked out like halfway through the credits. We didn't we didn't we joked that is there a Marvel Cinematic Universe? There isn't no. credit scene. There's not, but apparently once the song finishes during the credits, you can hear the sounds of like the trees and you know whistling and okay. all of that. And apparently you can hear what might be digging that he might be trying to dig up the pig. Which, you know, potentially, if you think about it, the pig died with the original couple that stole him. Mm. They might have just buried him right back there in his home if, if he didn't die that far into the journey. So that could be interesting. So that's sort of a hint that he might be digging up. It, it also doesn't even need to be there. Well, maybe, maybe the pig might be out there oh, and he's digging the grave for the pig. I thought you were going to say the pig's digging the grave for Nicolas Cage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We jumped really ahead in the storyline there. Yeah, it's real, it's real interesting. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that because we joked about it, but I read that's actually literally what happens during the credits. There you go. Um, I want to get back to the lighting, which you mentioned. Because, yeah, you mentioned a lot of naturalistic lighting. I noticed that too in the sense that, and I'm sure, like, you know, they still have, like, LEDs up and stuff, but the big wide of them in that apartment on the first morning mm-hmm. after, you know, the nightclub scene and... They're just talking. This is where we find out about how he cooked that meal for the, you know, his uh, Alex Wolf's parents. Um, the lighting on the scene is interesting because yeah, they, they've almost exposed it for the outside windows, so it's still I believe it's still a little overexposed. We could see the buildings, but uh, those two especially are like quite in shadow. Mm-hmm. And I even made a point of uh, you know when you finally meet his dad, even the scene when they're having dinner together, the three of them, it's so. Quite, it's quite quite dark, really low lit. That I couldn't actually tell whether that was um, uh, Negan from The Walking Dead or not. They actually played the dad. It's not, but um, I thought that was interesting. Like that, it was so low lit, you you can almost barely recognize what their facial features mm. even look like. Uh, which on something like TV would be a big no no. Like you would need to light that up. But I I just thought it was interesting that the film was generally quite low lit, and very dark. low key lighting. Yeah. Um, which yeah, it make it makes sense as a type of tone they're going for. So it didn't bother grounded me. realism is the definitely the forefront. This is trying to the only time it ever it tries to go out of that uh, that realism realm into more surrealism is when they do that weird Fight Club. Um, yeah, which makes sense. Like I understand the motion of it, which but is it, entirely it, an indoor or interior location. We yeah, should say, yeah, but just the the cons the conceptual part mm. is the only part that kind of. It kind of defers away from um, sort of the the nor like the very grander realism of the rest of the film. Yeah, because like when he goes to the restaurant, talks to the chef, for example, or you know, like uh, those kinds of people, or like the you know the guy actually like bringing the meat in, and he's the one that has to arrange the the yeah. restaurant. I mean, like that. Those are things that are tied to that industry that we who aren't familiar with this kind of industry, you know, intimately can still recognize as, oh, okay, they're in, like, the food business, you know. Um, but the Fight Club thing is a little... 
Yeah, it's a little more abstract. I feel like, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if those kinds of places actually exist because yeah. I know the whole the the emphasis is films putting on the stress levels and mental psychological uh, problems that anyone in the culinary mm. high culinary business have, whether that be waiters, chefs, the the works, everyone involved. Um, they need this place to blow off steam, and of course, Fight Club actually does discuss that quite a bit in its own film. Yeah. Um, and so and Fight Club spin-off it, of the it film still too. has like a sense of believability that this this right. sort of hidden place of weird sort of angry angry expression, you know, when Nick Cage's character's getting beaten to a pulp, mm. like by this waiter, um, it, it, you, you definitely buy it. So, was this the fact that he doesn't fight back? I think that's either. the important part. Yeah, it's not about it's not like a fight club. It's about like 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 beating mules basically mm. which i know that 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 does exist some places some people like get paid lots of money to get punched by other people yeah because they can take the hit it's interesting yeah because I, I was wondering is like that are they all gonna like go through him and punch because the important but... distinction is him like tight putting his hands behind his back yeah yeah and just taking it taking it which is different from what we might have expected walking in is that there were going to be some you know hand combat fight scene so to speak it's yeah. more John Wick-esque yeah the other scene I want to talk about because I completely forgot that this existed until just now is the scene when he stumbles upon the kid in the backyard of his old I guess childhood home or not even necessarily childhood home but like you know the home he probably lived in before moving into the woods 15 years earlier yeah, it's clearly his, his pre-dead wife house yeah What's just as he goes back to the restaurant that used to be his restaurant yeah and it's funny because obviously he has this conversation with the kid and uh, nothing really happens like you know we're, we're watching through the window of inside the house so with the cameras inside the house that we're not really meant to be in because there's a lot of seekers shots in this film yeah yeah but it, it's like funny because the way they frame it you kind of expect someone to walk in like what are you doing with my child and that never happens and i'm all, i'm wondering th- there is a naivete to the kid teaching him how to play the like the song or the music with his instrument but i'm also wondering like i'm wondering what the the allegory is for that scene in particular. If it is just like a naivete, innocence thing, or that he's reliving his past and well, some It's one of the way. first few scenes we really get to see a little bit of his culinary insight too, mm. um, where he talks about oh, the, that's the right. fruit. Yeah. Um, and how it has a very explicit time of year where it you know, ripes. And, and we he has such an adept understanding, particularly of, of how plants and, and nature interacts with the art of, of, of making what he makes. So... It is one of the first insights we get into that sort of that other world that he used to live in, and yeah. of course, I think that that's only brought in because a yeah he feels comfortable talking about someone who doesn't know who he is, mm. um, and also that's he is grounded point. in a place of of the past too, you know, yeah. and even reminiscing like the tree's gone, you know, where did mm. that tree go? So that makes sense to me. Yeah, I guess the only other thing I want to talk about before we jump into our highlight scenes, sure. if you're ready, um, is like I mentioned earlier this. Brat Pitt review on Letterboxd that specifically goes into the importance of Portland as a place. Um, and I'm, I I guess she lives in Portland. And that's where this review actually stands. I'm not going to read it word for word, but it essentially talks about how, you know, Portland was full of down-to-earth people who do love, like, the nature that is down there. And that's my guess is that Portland is known for having, like, a big nature aspect of it as well as, you know, like, your local rural small town area. And then I guess, like, you got your city that we see... I guess in the first act of this film, which mm-hmm. what did you think of that? The fact that they labeled each act with like a chapter title and stuff. 
It was related. Well, it was related to a food of the the scene. That's true. I I didn't think it was too necessary, but it's I guess it's nifty. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. conventional. It's it, it wasn't you know Civil War Russo text obnoxiously it wasn't quite the as uh, good as promising young woman's like uh, the chapters. Yeah. See that always confused me. But but we talked about that on Promising Young Woman. So mm-hmm. if you want to hear our thoughts, go to that one. Because I'm not getting into those chapters again. Yes. <laughs> I have I have an interesting relationship with legends on screen with those texts. Um, but yeah, it was talking about. Or that geographical side of Portland, but then how apparently there has been sort of an influx of more wealthier people actually moving to Portland and I guess starting businesses there or molding the city into something that's a bit more trendy and more accessible for the rich. So it seems like there's a little bit of a uh, social economic divide that's been created in Portland. I don't know how long this has been going for. Um, like I said, look up Brat Pitts, um, although it just says Brat now, so maybe she changed her name or something. Probably one of the most popular reviewers on Letterboxd, like insane. Um, but yeah, just check out that review because it's really interesting. It does go a little bit into about that. That's kind of all the review actually touches on, which you know what? I kind of respect that like in the a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, that it's like a very specific thing about the film. Well, it's, I think the influx of a upper class culture is, is mm. a big thing that we can even relate in Australia. There are multiple regions that were lower socioeconomic classes and even in the last 20 years have become these influxes mm. of of hyper wealthy people that inconsequentially shapes things like food and culinary art and and drinking and things like and and like both of that you know because obviously you know food and wine pairing's huge as yep. they've been discussed in this film it's like very clear that it's like yeah these influxes yeah they push out the the people that actually um want to do anything other than indulge in this sort of high class. And I mean, you know, from a Perth standpoint, you could argue those points are, are pre- prevalent with the changes that Fremantle's undergone in the last 25, 30 mm, years. Yeah, for sure. Um, particularly certain areas north of the river, even more so, um, you know, when you push it up to the Scarborough region and stuff yeah. where that wasn't like that 20, 30 years ago, that influx of wealth and, and culture in quotations um, has completely shifted. <laughs> It's fascinating you mentioned that because I only just thought about this. Speaking because I mentioned earlier that, you know, I quit one of my jobs recently and how I tied that into the the exploration of the characters here, one who wants to live their own life versus, you know, people obsessed with that. But I think about, like, one of my first jobs I had towards Spearwood, which is maybe less than 30 minutes away from the jobs that I work now, which are just north of the river, mm-hmm. like you mentioned. And the, this, the just the houses that people live in, it is a world of difference. Yeah. It's shocking. I definitely think North of the River that is probably a more prominent example than Fremantle because Fremantle still holds on to like the aspects of like it has a good array of it but it's definitely... Yeah. It still has it's, an artsy it, feel to it though. It does. It does. Really Whereas high. you push to like Scarborough and even where we saw this film Leaderville that has astronomically mm. changed yeah. in the last 25, 30 years. The level of, of that sort of higher class wealth is very apparent in places like Leaderville and, and upwards north. Mm. Like, um, you know, we label it literally the Golden Triangle and that's because of sort of this sort of Portland-esque change where yeah. it's like um, it goes both ways because it robs individuality, um, which this film touches on quite a few times, um, particularly for the, the artisans of these industries mm. because culture uh, wealth dictates culture culture dictates the art 
um, whether that be in any form, including culinary, turns out. So, yeah. Um, which has touched on a number of scenes throughout this film. Yeah, well, there's there's definitely a hierarchy, isn't, even as we go through, because we start not only in the wilderness, but then we go straight into the diner. And that's a pretty, you know, it, it seems like a pretty low-class diner where a lot of people, you know, they don't even have uh, waffles or pancakes or whatever it was. Like, very chill, sort of lower-class diner. I mean, that's how we don't consider diners to be a place where rich people dine, you know what I mean? Um, but then we progressively go from that into the city, into, you know, the nightclub, and then kind of go up from there into the fancy restaurant. And th- there is a hierarchical development that we mm. go through this film. Definitely feels like we're working to the final boss. <laughs> exactly. Until we end up in the, the, the bloody multi-million dollar houses. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, lo- I love that. I love um, that we discussed that. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, shout out to LME for my letterbox uh, comment of the week. Oh, yeah. Pikachuy. <laughs> we're not the only ones I like um, that. they picked up on that and then there was another one that was like uh, stop talking about existentialism and show me more pig which <laughs> I thought was pretty fun um, yeah pig's got a very little screen time in this yeah he's so cute so cute um, glad we don't see it get nightingaled um, that's, uh, that's true that scene actually first off I think it works with the, the, the door slam mm, it kind of has where that... like the camera follows him down yeah, but even just like the lead up to that sound effect, and I kind of joked to you as well that when when I when we edited the sound of the trailer into last week's podcast, I didn't watch the visual of it. I just saw the sound waves of the trailer, and I I laughed because I got to see at what point in the trailer does it just spike up that is meant to like jump scare audiences. Oh like, yeah, I dodged that. It is the one jump scare, and I'm glad they only have one, and it does make you jump. What I yeah. like about it though is I saw it coming because. Mm. And this is deliberate, which I really like, is just as he's getting up and slowly approaching the door, there was a torchlight that passes the window. Ah, a brief glimmer. That's very clearly like the torch of them moving up to the front of the the door. And it was like a second I was like... Man, that's not that's a coyote. That's no So moon. clever, though, because it's like, obviously, <laughs> it's purely from, you know, we're getting his perspective and he's looking at the door, so he can't catch that. But we're supposed to see that. So it was a good, yeah, very cl- cool. cleverly well-blocked, choreographed, subtle way of being like, there's something coming Well, it creates this atmosphere where it reminds me of the, the one serious car crash that I've ever been in. And I was actually telling someone this story the other day of the way, the way you kind of sense it coming, it's almost like you feel it. And the, the best way for me to describe it is just this feeling of bang. And like, that's what a car crash almost feels like, especially when you're not preparing for it. And I think this thing kind of nails that feeling. Like, you, you felt it coming without knowing what the hell you were expecting. Mm. And then the door slam. It's a great scene. And you're right. It's all in the big one We track down with him, and it's great. And then you're right. We don't get to see the pig nightingale, <laughs> which is very good. Very glad about you get that. get to hear that scream, though, which is oh, like yeah. brutal. Great. The sound work is great. I love, like, film. they try and mix it to make it sound more like a human scream, too. Yeah, like there's yeah. A, there's a really clever little nuanced mix there. Which I'm thinking that that's the distortion of perspective with obviously his lost wife, which mm. I like. Yeah, no, it's very clever. I don't, I wouldn't say that's my highlight scene, but Zeke, what is yours? Uh, it's definitely his interaction with Fenway, I want to say, or Fenway. Let's pull it up. Are you talking about the chef? Yes. Let's see. Is it Derek, a former pasta chef at no, Rob's restaurant? It is. Fenway. It is Fenway? Okay. So this is uh, obviously after, you know, they managed to get a reservation at this place. Um, you know, sort of uh, Wolf's character takes the lead and goes, 
oh, look, I'll do the talking uh, of Amir. Mm. Um, but obviously hits that wall very quickly because he's a bit awkward. <laughs> and not, he's not smooth at all. No, he's um, not. He's the illusion doesn't of smooth. walk the talk. Talk the walk. And basically it leads into this fantastic, <laughs> probably one of the best exchanges Cage does, where he kind of breaks Finway down. He does this a few times throughout the film. And that's sort of his John Wick tool belt. Because if anything, he just attacks them with brutal honesty mm. and pure empathetic understanding. I think is the 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 biggest thing he has in his tool belt. Um, and you know, he sort of talks about Finway, who was this you know this pasta chef that got fired after a couple months because he kept burning the pasta, and yeah. all he wanted to do was own a pub. And he sort of slowly breaks the the cracks start to appear at the scene. It's a great back and forth uh, exchange between yeah. Cage and I'm going to get him uh, David Nell. Mm. Um, so great that was a great back and forth scene and really played to dis, you know definitely disproving that you know sort of a, a initial cynical perspective of you saying oh well if he's all dirtied up and doesn't say anything it's like definitely disproves that with his yeah, power yeah. of dialogue exchange and that for that's sure that's the thing well I spent yeah the first at least act of the film being like oh is, is this why people call it a good performance because he doesn't speak but yeah <laughs> but he does and he speaks really well he's excellent um, Softly and deadly, I think yeah, is, no. is the beauty of that scene because it's it's a collection of him talking about this stuff you clearly don't like making, and he slowly gets that out of him. Um, you want and citing what was your what's the dish that you wanted your signature dish at your place, and then he like gets it out, and then Nell snaps out and then snaps back into that customer service mode. It's yeah. really good acting, particularly from Nell in that scene, especially. Well, it's funny because even just the subtlety of him, like recognizing, like, oh my god, this was my my mentor, like the guy I looked up to, my boss, and the expectation he doesn't remember who he is, and I think that that's sort of an expectation. You know, if you met like someone like a very famous director that you may have worked with for a minute, and like, you think of them in such high status, you wouldn't expect them to remember who you are if you meet them five years later, or in this case, fifteen, twenty. And it's like, no, he, he remembers exactly and everything about you, <laughs> which I think I think is totally fair. And it's, it goes back to even his line way later in the film. He remembers, or it might even be in that scene, he remembers every dish he's ever served to every person he's ever served. And I like and Where I we like get that. the, the Pigatooie moment. Yeah. <laughs> My highlight scene is a bit more subtle, a bit more random. But I wanted to mention, I mentioned earlier, uh, I love the visual storytelling, especially in the earlier parts as well. There is no dialogue. I love just the the slow, methodical pace of seeing him get his car started back up. And, you know, we see he takes the curtain off and he, he wipes away the leaves on the windshield. He, he has to actually put fuel in the in the tank. Um, I just love that little process of seeing him actually, like, get the car ready. Even just the sound of the car just screeching and dying as he's just moving around a tree and... So I, just, I just like that because it's like a subtle thing that at this point we already know he's been gone for a while but mm. it's just like that extra really grounds it yeah yeah, yeah that like oh wow he really like he hasn't even touched his car in god knows how long yeah. and he doesn't even end up using it he gets it like literally 10 meters down the road and <laughs> just has to walk to the diner anyway yeah. but um yeah i just i like that i like that there was a subtle scene nothing needed to be said just reinforcing an idea that is already very clear. I like I like that. One hundred percent. Well, Pig is currently out in cinemas near you. There you go. Speaking of cinemas, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this oh, week? Oh, I'll give you a cheeky cheeky week, Z. Coming to Netflix this week is The Guilty, 
which sees Jake Gyllenhaal play a 911 operator as he attempts to save a distressed caller during a harrowing day of revelations. Now, it's funny because I know this is a remake of another film about like a 911 caller. I think we actually had a student film at Murdoch. We saw it one year that was very similar to this. It's about a girl who takes 911 calls and has to like redirect them and stuff. Um... So this concept's been around a lot. I'm not particularly excited for this, to be honest. I know there's a lot of really cool cameos. Like, I know, um, like, Ethan Hawke has, like, a voice cameo in it and stuff. Mm. They've got a lot of random celebrities that just do voice things over the phone, which I think's cool. My recommendation, people, is you try and watch A Sister. Now, A Sister is a short film that was nominated for an Oscar the same year that I think Parasite won. And it's one of the best short films I've ever seen. And it's the other perspective. Well, it, it starts on the 911 operator, but it's about how the caller is trying to subtly get across a message by pretending to call her sister when in actuality she's in a, a captive situation trying to get out. And it, it's about the dynamic between the 911 caller and this girl and them figuring each other out and what the thing is and getting help to them. It's a brilliant short film. So mm. I recommend that more than I recommend The Guilty. But who knows? Maybe I'll watch it and like it. Yeah, I probably <laughs> I probably got to give it a watch just for Jill and Hall. Um, yeah. And it seems like a. I want to say an easy watch, but it seems like an easy sell on the yeah, watch. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've seen the trailer. It, it's very tense, but it, it's one of those things where I'm like, it, it almost feels too, what's the word? They're reaching for the drama, you know? It feels a little too artificial. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. If a second-year film student, which is the one you're talking about, mm. can come up with a very similar presence, i.e. be it, probably not do it as refined as you would hope a Hollywood-grade writer, right. sure, but that really goes to show how little that idea has to, to grow and move. And like you said, it it's having that flip access that gave it an original element, which is maybe why Sister yeah. is going to be the way to go. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a little tricky to find without paying for it, but that's an excellent, excellent short film. But that's coming to Netflix as well as all nine seasons of Seinfeld and a bunch of horror films. Of course, we're entering October, which is exciting. So you've got Jason X. Nightmare on Elm Street 3, 5, 6, and the remake from 2010. It's a weird collection, but there you go. Uh, the Conjuring 2, and the not-so-scary, scary movie. So there you go. That's exciting. Coming to stand this week is Supernova, the 2020 film that we reviewed back in episode 118. So there you go. You can check that one out. Uh, Disney Plus, I couldn't confirm this. I read that Free Guy is meant to come to Disney Plus this week. The Ryan Reynolds film. Oh, Free Guy. I think so. I couldn't quite... If I go... If I type it on Disney+, Plus, it doesn't come up. I'll definitely be watching if it is. Yeah. So just keep, just take that off a grain of salt, guys. But that might be coming this week. Uh, coming to Prime this week is The Dry, the Eric Banner film. We don't need to get into that. <laughs> Our episode is also up. 106 for that one. <laughs> uh, coming to Binge is all five films from the Twilight franchise. That's by Sunday the 3rd. And uh, coming to cinemas this week, you have The Colony which is set in the distant future where a female astronaut finds herself shipwrecked on a long, decimated Earth and must decide the fate of the wasteland's remaining populace. What would you do, Zig? Would you kill them all off or would you breed them? <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> only those two options. Only those two options. I feel yeah. like there's going to be a little bit more of a complex uh, conundrum there. Oh, maybe. I don't know. So I might hold out and watch it. Ah, good, good call. Then you, yeah, you see what happens. Also, don't have to answer that question. Yeah, you, you see this film, you make a, an informed decision sure. based on the screenwriting of this film. 100%. Uh, Nightram sees an isolated young man develop an unexpected friendship with a reclusive airless, and when the relationship reaches its tragic end, his anger leads to commit a heinous act. 
Now, this was meant to come out this, this last week and then got delayed at the last second, so I was able to snip it out and put it in this episode. But, um, uh, yeah, I think it's a Stan original, but I'm not sure if it actually comes to Stan. Mm. It just comes to cinemas, but we shall see. Uh, Miss sees a young man seeking his gender identity and deciding to take part in the Miss France beauty pageant. Rhapsody of Love sees romance work and life all collide when a wedding planner and wedding photographer meet and unite sparks together. And finally, a members-only screening of a particular film coming to Leaderville at the end of the week. But uh, I might just hold out to talk about this one, Zeke. No drama as well. Up until Jake's last film that he's about to talk about in two seconds. We're not watching any of those films <laughs> next week on the show. But Jake, what is this film? So remember 10 seconds ago when I said there was a film I was going to wait to tell you about, Zeke? Yes. This is that film. This is that 10 seconds later. I know, right? Wow. Exciting. If you click the fast forward on Spotify, you jumped right ahead. You well shouldn't done. do that, though. No. Because got... every second of the show counts. <laughs> every second's important. Every second gives us money. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it certainly does not. <laughs> Next week on the show, we're watching Lamb. discover a mysterious half-lamb, half-human newborn on their farm in Iceland. And while the unexpected prospect brings joy to the family, it eventually destroys them. So we've moved from the entree that was pig mm. into the main course that was lamb. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Maybe. It's I funny because fun we started talking about pig like, oh, don't know what to say about this man. It's a pretty straightforward film. And then we like dissected the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what we're here for, though. That's it. That's um, it. This film looks weird. <laughs> yeah, and you know what's funny? So they played a trailer for this while we watch when we watched Pig, but I swear to God, the trailer they played was like like an even teasier teaser trailer than the teaser they put out like a couple of months ago. Mm. So the version you saw is even more vague and confusing than the one they put out online a couple of months ago. It's gonna be a weird time. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, well, yeah, we're getting a really early screening of this. So if you want to see it with us, it's a members-only screening at Luna, Leaderville. So I, you need your privilege card yeah, for that I, one. I don't really know what film I could compare this to. Like, I, my mm. original gut reaction was like a Yorgoth Lanthimos, but this really is nothing like that when well, I think about that. I think tonally you might be spot on. Plot-wise, I... This might I be closer to something more like The Vich, right? Like something that might be a bit yeah, more... Yeah, I, I think... 
we're just gonna have to see, aren't we? <laughs> but I think these are two excellent visual comparisons. I have to watch the bitch. I haven't actually seen it, but I yeah. know it has that weird tone to it. Yeah, um, in terms of just sort of being out in the middle of nowhere. And, yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll go on a lighting. bit of a bender this week, a bit of horror, weird horror ben- bender. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I watched the bitch last Halloween, so it's almost been a year. Mm. Which is kind of insane to think about. I've got to do that in mid, mid, midsummer. They're the two. That oh I've... my god, yes. But who knows? Might, we might do that. I mean, we haven't even thought about our October special yet. So like no. a Halloween esque one. So maybe that might go under the light. Then we we'll have to wait and see on that no, one. We're gonna have a couple to weeks see. away. So if you want to join us for that screening, that is the second of October, or Saturday, at eleven a.m. So we haven't been... had a uh, uh, one that's ahead of ahead of schedule like this for a while. No, yeah, the one the one I thought of instantly was the Irishman. I feel like we've done another one. Um, yeah, I'm sure we have because that was a while ago now. Um, we saw an early, well, I saw an early screening of Shiver Baby, but not only did we do that on the podcast weeks later, but by the time that I saw it, most of the world had already seen it. This yeah. feels like an authentic early screening. Mm, get like, you that early mm, scoop of lamb babies. They, oh, lamb they, humans. They, 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 <laughs> lamb baby. Oh, there's lamb babies in here. I'm sure. I'm sure, like, there are a bunch of lamb babies, but then one of the lamb babies is a lamb human baby. It's a lumen. Or a ham. Thank you for listening to the podcast. (laughs) But until then... That's your role. (laughs) You're playing me out. I really tried to get out of this This is the the biggest outro the show's ever had. (laughs) The song's still going. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was sick. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Lamb. Ah, that's like a sheep. <laughs> damn. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs>